He's given me a lot of powerful language to understand things such as if this is not a right fit, it's better that we all understand this sooner and that we help each other find what is the right fit. And I think that freedom has ironically allowed me to be more loyal because I can tell him what I'm thinking or what's working well or what's not. So it's been iterative and here I am three years later with the same firm, so there's that. You're listening to your financial planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. This week, Jude Boudreaux and Autumn Campbell from the Planning Center join us to share their experiences from both sides of the hiring process. In this episode, you'll learn how other financial planners can successfully grow their teams and the mistakes that many financial planners fall into when hiring, and those mistakes that can hurt the career progression of their new hires as well as the success of their firm. Coming up next, Jude and Autumn cover the tips and tricks that make their working relationship a success from the get-go and what planners on both sides of the hiring process need to know. When you think about the work of financial planners, do you think of words like passion, purpose, and impact? If not, then something just isn't right. I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade, and we believe that empowering people to live their best lives is a noble calling. The independent REAs who work with us use their passion to help transform client lives, communities, and their own futures. Want to learn more about how we can support you in helping your clients reach their financial goals? Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. So thanks for being here today. We have Autumn Campbell and Drew Boudreaux from the Planning Center uh, to talk to us a little bit about new hires, getting them on the fast track, and, and creating a firm that is supported by younger advisors growing up through the profession. Um, so thanks for being here. Uh, and go ahead, Autumn and Jude, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit, or how you got to where you are. Hi, well, thanks again um, for having us here. My name, as you said, is Autumn Campbell. I now live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hometown is just south of Seattle, a small town named Graham. Um, Started off my career as a teacher, then went into counseling for some time. My now husband and I hired a financial planner who then um, taught us a lot. And I ended up taking CFP coursework, was really interested in being just more financially literate and thought that it was really powerful what I was learning in the classes and the coursework. Um, didn't have the intention of moving into the profession at the time. She ended up introducing me to Jude, who I've had the pleasure of working with for nearly three years now. And so that's that's the short of it. And I'm Jude Boudreaux, and I'm now a partner and senior planner with the Planning Center. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I'm just a kid from down the bayou in southern Louisiana, and uh, you know, went to college, got a degree in finance, moved to Colorado to work for Janus Mutual Funds, and was there through the tech bubble and through a number of other uh, happenstance things. Ended up uh, getting my degree. In, or my CFP and uh, working in a number of different capacities. I started Upper Line Financial Planning as my own firm as a fee-only RIA in uh, September of 2010 and then merged with the Planning Center in September of 2018. So uh, yeah, so Autumn and I came together as I hired kind of my, my first team members for Upper Line in uh, the fall of 2015. So what, what was the precipice of the first hire? So you'd been in business for some, some time at that point, and then it was time to hire. What was the, the driving force for you to hire someone at that point? Upperline had grown a lot uh, over a few years, and you, know, you start out those firms, they start very slowly, but then um, once there's some critical mass, it can grow pretty quickly. And we were at a place where we really needed some additional support. So I thought uh, finding somebody who was eager to learn about the financial planning world, who needed some experience to earn their CFP marks, 
um, and who is uh, really fired up to kind of come into a situation where they could be in client meetings right away, uh, which I think is so important and is not something that people often get to do. So I wanted to structure a position that offered those things and that uh, was really solid as a residency. So uh, come work for us for two or three years and then uh, you wanted to go and start your own thing, great. You go work, for, you know, get a role somewhere else, that's wonderful. But um, wasn't necessarily that we were gonna work together forever. And so we started from there and uh, set out to search and very fortunate to find Autumn and uh, work together for three years now. So Autumn, how did you find Jude then? So you obviously applied for the residency or at some point. How did that go for you? How did you find Jude? I found him through a recommendation of our financial planner at the time. I was talking with her as, as we do with our financial planners about life, not just numbers and about what I wanted, what I did like about the work I was doing and what I might aspire to have, which in my case was a little bit more flexibility, autonomy, frankly, ability, upward mobility of income as well. Um, having been a counselor, it's, it's very tenure driven and I really wanted something that I could have other factors than just tenure um, be, be what defined my pay. And she recommended that I speak with Jude. She knew me really well through our engagements over the past couple of years and the way that I interacted. And she thought that I might be a good complement to what he was looking for. And so I had some initial conversations with him. I remember thinking, New Orleans? I mean, that sounds cool, but I don't, I don't know much. I haven't thought much about New Orleans before. And as I began talking with Jude more, and I had a lot of questions for him. I didn't just want to uproot myself and my spouse, who, Michael, who I had just married I don't know, a few months prior, if that, to um, move to New Orleans. But through conversation, I realized it was a really good fit. Seemed like I would learn a lot. It'd be very experiential from the start with client. I wanted to be in front of clients, not exclusively back office support, although I knew that was necessary for my technical competence growth. And we had conversations. There was an openness to fluidity and learning it together and finding what works well for each of us. And here we are three years later. So Jude, you talked about wanting someone who was ready to sit in on client meetings almost immediately. So what are, what are the criteria that make someone eligible to sit in front of a client in your view? I think in my view, that's somebody who uh, can politely greet somebody and who takes good notes and is curious and um, eager to be part of that conversation. Take somebody who loves people. And that's ultimately what our, I think our business is about. So to have those conversations and start there was what was most important for, for us. Um, I didn't have a lot of other requirements beyond that. And nor did I you know, expect somebody who's going to be you know, in meetings their first day as a new resident would come in and start presenting on half of the meeting. But ultimately, if this is somebody who wants to become a practitioner, and they've been through CFP program, chances are there's not a lot that I have to offer to them on the technical side. What I have to offer them is years of being in client meetings, and the opportunity for them to be in those to learn how to be a practitioner. So that's where we began. So Autumn, you're coming in as a new financial planner and your boss is saying to you, great, you're gonna be in this meeting as quick as possible. How do you approach that and show up for that client meeting as the new planner coming into the firm? Well, a lot of it was learning from Jude what his expectations were, and he allowed me to be in client meetings and to sit there, and if I had questions, he'd allow me to ask them as they came to me. Many of the questions I would put on the backside of our agendas to ask him later to understand more of the 
nuance of why he would or wouldn't say certain things and or how he would say it and what that meant, trying to, to pair my education with the practic practice that I was seeing in front of me. But a lot of it with him was really fluid on learning how to engage with clients and how to address things. And I, with him, um, it's there's not a lot of rigidity. It was to be present, um, be caring. I think he really appreciated my, my background in teaching and counseling and, and thought that I might be able to be present in that way. And that's certainly something that I appreciate in people. And I want to provide that to our clients. I think at the end of the day, they're looking for someone who sees them and their desires and their wants and their fears and can help them navigate their numbers to fit what is their life best lived. We're going to take a step backwards. We've got to put the cart before the horse a little bit, talking about meetings already. Um, and so before Autumn joins the firm, there's a certain level of sort of review, right? And the important pieces that go into that. And you've talked about doing writing samples, but I think some of the most more interesting is talking about the Colby Index and how that plays a part. How do these uh, sort of harder to measure items play a part for you? So if you could talk a little bit about your Colby scores and, and how you're compatible and different. Sure. Yeah, so um, Colby is a kind of a work styles profile. I often tell people when, when I send it to them, I'll say this isn't a test to see if you're going to be, if, can you do the job? It's just how will you do the job? What are you naturally going to gravitate towards using? So when, um, you know, my Colby score is a 7392, which is uh, those, and those kind of four columns are fact finder, which is the first one, your ability to deal with uh, level of detail, I think in our knowledge work industry, it's really important to be able to handle that to a certain degree. Uh, follow through is the second degree. Uh, quick start is the third number, and then implementer is the fourth. So for a, um, you know, somebody who's got a high degree of fact finder, as, as I do, and a lot of quick start, which makes me a good entrepreneur, but not necessarily a good doer of things. So uh, my ideal partner in doing work is somebody who can handle the level of detail that's required with our client work, and so you've got a high enough fact finder score, but also has a really good follow through level and likes completing things and building systems and processes to manage stuff. So it's, um, you know, I sent those to the candidates who I was looking for, and honestly, most people in our industry are fact finder follow through people. Uh, it really lends itself to success within financial planning. Almost all of the practitioners in our firm are fact finder follow throughs. So it, it makes a big difference for being able to um, just handle the, what goes on with our client relationship. How does that work for you, Autumn? Yeah, so I'm an 8733, so high fact finder and follow through, similar to what Jude was alluding to in, or saying in a lot of the planners in our firm. And I, I remember when I got my results and I was worried that I would be too lopsided. <laughs> I was very fearful of sending them to him. But it turns out that he was actually looking for someone complimentary um, to him, which implies that I'm also very different than him. And so I, I'm not a big quick start, but I work well with them if I'm allowed to have the freedom to do the follow through. And so that's, that's how we've worked together and we've managed through different things where Jude being very high on quick start, he'll have many, many ideas throughout the days. And as a high follow through and as a new hire wanting to do well, um, especially in his eyes as my employer, that, that was a lot. And so it, it, I had the opportunity to ask him, well, how do I do these things? How do, how do I complete these? And some of them who would say, well, those, those are someday maybes. The, I'm not looking for a timeline on those. Just maybe put them somewhere that you'd like that, that makes sense. 
and other things he'd say, I, I would really like that in the next year or so. I think that could be really great for your trajectory or for the firm or whatever the context was. And then other things that he said, yeah, if you, if you could put something together, that'd be really great. So when he delegates, he's also not very specific on how he'd like me to do it because he just wants the idea to be done and will allow the people that have tendencies to work in that way to create something that's well-fitting for the purpose. Is it possible for a candidate to be a good candidate? Let's say in this situation you needed high follow-through candidate, but you're not a high follow-through candidate, right? So nope. on some level, uh, there will be someone along the way who is more similar to Jude than they are to Autumn. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so how does that person from a quick start, high quick start, low follow-through, translate and look at the, the board, right, and, and say, look, this is the job I'm applying for and I need some follow-through even though I'm a quick start, right? Sure. How do you make that transition to get through those first years when you're more the employee? It's a, it's a challenge to adapt in those circumstances. And so I started my career uh, on the phones at Janus Mutual Funds. And uh, I got great scores on my service and I got all this great customer feedback. And I got terrible scores with regard to compliance. Um, yeah, did you send people prospectuses if they opened a new fund? And all of those things. So. It, um, it can be a real struggle. So you have to find ways to adapt that make sense for you and for a role. Um, and, it, and, and also, I think you've got to be looking for how do I grow into a place where I can use more of my skills? Because you, know, you don't want to learn. I think the danger in adapting too far is you then learn how to be a great thing that you're not. Um, and how can you find a place that's going to give you some autonomy and ability to have some of those skills? Um, uh, if I, I don't know if that's a super... No, well, I thought I'd answer, but hopefully it is. And I've had, in retrospect, like I had interns previously from the university that I'm, uh, where I went to and did their Colby's. And um, one was like 7382, so similar to mine. And she and I would sit and we'd have these tremendous conversations. It was so much fun. And then, but like nothing happened. And it wasn't until I hired somebody who was different than I was that I started to see like, oh, well, this is how that works, and it, it provided for a different perspective for them and uh, different kinds of outcomes for me. So I think part of the conversation obviously needs to lead into what is the next five years from day one of the hire. So, and, and you've talked about how every firm can do this differently depending on where they want their employees to go, but for you and developing Autumn and then Autumn having been through that process, how do you take the CFP training you learn in school, translate it to practical training, and get someone up to speed enough to take on a client of their own? I'm a big believer in uh, that we need to try things, we need to fail at them and learn from them. So I think if the goal is to have somebody who's a CFP that can handle client relationships and be really, really autonomous, then we need to give them opportunities to explore that as quickly as possible. So. That may not be in the first couple of weeks of being in meetings, but within a few months, you can probably be handling parts of those meetings and talking about things where you're comfortable with. And I think as, as managers too, it's our role to create situations for people to be successful. And so how are we developing and setting them up for success? So for me, that was, okay, well, you'll talk about HSAs. And so you explain to them the tax parts, why this is beneficial, and then start to answer their questions. And over time, that evolves into a larger and larger skill set in terms of what a young new planner is comfortable of talking about. 
So as we get through those things, eventually you can go from leading, you know, being in a meeting and taking notes to leading a small part of the meeting, to leading parts of a meeting, and then to leading a whole meeting, and then ultimately to kind of having your own clients to pilot from beginning to end. And again, part of my commitment to that was to, I took a, a young couple as a client that we wouldn't have typically, wouldn't typically been a great fit, but I was like, look, so Autumn's gonna be your lead planner, we'll, it's gonna be half the rate that we normally would, you're gonna get a great experience out of it, and I'll be in all the conversations, but she's your planner and uh, got to start and have the first awkward vision conversation and kind of get through that because it's going to be awkward. There's no way to skip the part of learning and evolving on how those things are going to work. But again, like we, I think we really need to be really conscious of setting our team members up for success and being able to have them evolve in a way that makes sense for them, their skill set, and whatever opportunity has come forward. What would you say to a business owner who is concerned about having a new hire in a client meeting and potentially says something wrong, number one, or maybe they don't say anything wrong at all, they just put a different face on what your firm looks like than what you may give, sure. depending on how they deliver the questions? You know, what I would say to another firm member is like, are we building a business or are we building you, right? Like, as if there has to be a way that you have created it, then that's fine. You can probably find people who will be compliant with that. But if we're building a business that has multiple voices and uh, you know people where they have the opportunity to grow and be themselves, that's better for everybody. So I think we want to encourage people to have that and to find their voice and to be able to speak with the things that are important to them. And they're you know, you bring a young planner into planning meetings and conversations, they're, they're going to make mistakes. Uh, what I would also say is just like I do, and so there will be right there'll be sure. meetings where I'll bring up the you know the limit for a family you know high deductible plan, and Autumn will correct me on what the actual number is. Um, or you know early on, I feel like I recall a situation where Autumn explained about you know a SEP IRA, but kind of gave like the simple IRA limits, and I was like, well, what I think actually what you're referring to, Autumn, are the simple IRA limits for the SEP. It's actually this, and so. There's always ways when we're in that conversation with a client to be able to say, no, that's, here's actually how this is going to work. Our clients want the right answer. They don't need it to be immediately the right answer. I think they're comfortable with seeing that evolution just like we all are. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is a lot of just general on-the-job training and experiences, so the, sort of the best you can have. Autumn, would you agree with that? Is it, is it more than just in-person in meetings, right? Is it e-communication? Do you send emails maybe to Jude and have them review before you send them out and then you can start sending more emails on your own. How did that progression work in your first three, four years there? Yeah, I'd agree with everything Jude said. I mean, to add to it, I believe this process is iterative. It's not you do or you don't lead or you are, or you are not a lead planner. I'm a lead planner with many relationships and I'm a the second chair for many relationships. I'm also back in support not in meetings for other relationships based on what what is best and what we've decided is if I have room to grow or if the complexity of the client relationship is necessary that I'm in those meetings then I will be um, and other times I'll just help with the follow-through on things based on what I like to do and what my skills my tendencies tend to be and so it's, it's funny how people have said, oh, how was your, was your residency? And in part, I feel like I'm still in, in my residency as a portion because I'm still learning. And I've appreciated Jude allowing me to see how he's continuing to still learn as things change. 
I would also say too, one of the nice things about being, you know, with our transition to the planning center is now, you know, I've got a partner that is in her early 80s. Cecily Maton is just tremendous. And so when I'm in meetings with her, I'm second chair. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so just because I've been around the business for 20 years now, you know, I shouldn't be stopping paying attention to, well, how do they handle that in meetings? How do they discuss that? What, uh, there's so much that we can all learn from each other. And it, um, it's one of the things I'm most excited about with our partnership is the ability to grow and take everybody's uh, you know, knowledge and uh, you know, evolve that together. So Autumn, I'm curious for you, how important is the firm culture to you uh, in allowing your progression as a planner to learn more? Um, how does the culture affect that negatively or positively for you? I think culture is a big piece of that. I mean, that might sound stereotypical of my generation being a millennial. That said, it is something that is very important to me. I want to work with people who I think are good people to each other um, in their professional and personal lives. I, I want to be proud of who I, who I work with and the work that we do. I believe it's, it's really important as well that we have good relationships with each other because people you know, you know, they don't leave jobs, they leave managers. And sure. I think that's incredibly important that we continue to be good managers. And I think that extends far beyond, here is the how-to of the new job that you have. It is, you're a new person and we want to bring you into the fold and we want to, we hired you because we believe you have a lot of value to add. And so now we are a new place because of you. And how, how does that change the, the mo module uh, of things? So yeah. I, th I think it's, extraordinarily important and something that cannot be understated. And to, to speak specific to having worked with Jude for years now, from him I can say the consistent kindness, the patience, the understanding that if I mess up on the same thing two, three, four times, not trying to mess up, it's because I don't understand it fully yet. Maybe I need to do more research or maybe hearing it another way from him. But he's, al he's always treated me with a lot of kindness and I think that that's that just can't be overstated on how much that means to people and the feeling you get when you're in the room with others, especially someone whose approval that I'm constantly wanting as my employer. And then so the counter question is, how do you manage that culture from a leadership position in a firm? And now that you're at a much larger firm than, than Upper Line Window where it was you and Autumn, right? And maybe some other employees, but now it's a much larger situation. How do you manage that culture? And merging firms is a culture merge. There's a lot of culture changes that happen at that time. Yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately it's about having the right people in the room. And if, you know, we are the right people, the way we show up together will allow us to evolve and make choices and changes together. Um, but I'm a, I'm a huge, I'm a huge person on the service end of things. I think ultimately we provide, we expect to provide a certain level of service to clients and we speak to them in a certain way. That is the way in which we need to, that's kind of the minimum bar for how we treat and serve each other. So, um, yeah, my wife's background is at the Ritz Carlton. And so if they're, you know, we're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, um, that is not just for our clients, that is for each other. And, um, so we really believe in and committed to that. And I think the ultimately the way we get the best out of people is by giving them a platform and supporting them to lift them to new heights, not to, you know, try to, you know, push them and make them run up the hill until they have calluses. Uh, it, it's a different kind of a work that we do. Sure. And so, 
Uh, I think it's just really essentially important that we treat each other and our team with that same regard. And there's a level of this for in, in, in order for an employee to be successful in setting their expectations. Sure. Right? And so what is the process by which you determine expectations for Autumn versus other employees, right? Because I think I heard you say, um, when I heard you speak elsewhere uh, about the fact that it isn't, it's kind of like putting a, a career track in on one to three, three to five, five to seven, and restricting people to those years could be limiting for others and maybe too accelerated for some. And so how do you manage that from an expectation setting standpoint? without clear, direct, you know, barriers? Yeah, well, I think we have to have the heart to have a conversation. And you know, I, I circle this back so often to clients. Like if things are, if things are in a difficult place with clients, like we need to talk about it. And it's very much the same. We need to serve our workplace community with the same kind of care and concern that we do our client community. So um, if we're having a struggle or a challenge, we should be able to talk about it. If, um, and I, and I, I'm not a believer in kind of artificial timelines or deadlines for things. So if somebody is meeting the goals and we know kind of what it looks like to be a financial planner within our firm, uh, to move from a planning specialist or a resident to being a financial planner, then can you, you have those competencies? And we should want to help you get to that as quickly as possible, too. So if there are things you need to learn, how do we help support you on those parts that are not? And hopefully we're communicating with you about those goals and expectations more than once a year. I'm really proud in our setup that you know, Autumn has, besides the work that she does with me all the time, has coaching calls with you know, another one of our partners, Matt Sievertson, once a month about just for, as an opportunity to check in on here's what we're seeing and then for Autumn to share here's what here's what I'm seeing, here's what I need, and here's what's going on. So that again, it's not a surprise to anybody if things are coming up, it's going to happen. So let's build a, a way to talk about that and serve each other so that we'll all benefit. So what do you think about that? I absolutely agree with that. I think the conversation is crucial. It allows us to know where each other's hearts are at and where how we're doing and how we can help each other. I find that if things are a surprise in a review or feedback given, then we aren't communicating well enough, especially if that, that feedback given is pretty outdated by a few months, because then we could have spent all those months improving upon whatever is brought up if it's a corrective measure. Um, I also wanted to share something about the way in which we engage with each other. One thing that Jude has taught me just through um, how he is, is po use of positive psychology in language on saying things as learning opportunities where if I'm not getting something right, it's a learning opportunity. And it, he put, frames things in a way that it's something I look forward to and that he wants me to engage in. Um, or he'll even use the term fail faster um, so that I can learn from that or that we all can rather as well. We, I've also learned through some Arbinger training, things like Heart of Peace. Sometimes I've asked him for advice on how should I advise this way or advise on this topic for a client? What, what do you think is right? But here's all the baggage of how I feel the way I feel. And he said, honestly, I think if you come in with the right heart, with a heart of peace about it, and you're willing to have those conversations, knowing well that if I'm feeling some kind of way, it's likely that the client shares some of those emotions and feelings as well. So if I come at it saying, what what are the options? Not trying to control the outcome I want, but what, what works well? Is this working well? Should we change it? 
that's what he advises me on, as opposed to the specifics of getting specific things exactly the one right way. I think that's, um, that's something that I remember going through traditional schooling on being trained by, that there's one right way, and now I realize that in the, in the real world, if you will, and how humans actually work, we, we are fluid, and the way that we feel is the way that we are and act. And if we can, hand, if we can take care of that, the other stuff tends to take care of itself. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a certain sense of taking care of your own that sort of flows through this whole conversation. So there was a moment early in your career, Autumn, that that required a lot of conversation and decision making around where you're going to live and how this is this whole relationship will work. So could you take us through that briefly just to sort of set the stage and then maybe we can have a discussion about how those conversations worked recognizing that Jude you had a good hire and that Autumn you were happy with where you were but the life was not exactly lining up. Yeah so I knew that Jude was in New Orleans and so that was part of the decision factor in accepting a position with him three months into working with Jude uh, which was going really well learning a lot I mean it's like drinking through a fire hose I mean there's just so much it was really exciting because I, I as part of my strength finders learner is one is my top one so it was a really great fit from that perspective. But my husband, who came with me and supported me um, in my new venture, working in a completely new profession as well, coming from education, got his dream job with Teach for America, which is the program that we both got trained in and, and met through in Dallas, in his hometown of Tulsa. And we, that, that was a big decision point for us, and we decided that he would work there while I worked in New Orleans with Jude for my residency tenure. And we informed Jude of that, and I, I was very quick to let Jude know, I'm staying here, because that's that could be some really um, sudden news for an employer, especially someone who's put a lot of faith into me and already a lot of time resources and financial resources at that point. And so I felt a lot of loyalty there, plus I wanted to continue working for him. It was a really great opportunity, and I didn't know of another that um, that I could have. Not that I would want to switch anyway, there was no reason to. And within... 30 minutes or so of telling Jude that he he thought that it was really important that we found a way to make this work, of course, for the business, but also for me as a person. I thought that was pretty powerful. But Jude, would you like to share on that? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think if we were to think about this again from a client standpoint, you know, we need to yeah, help people get into situations where they're, you know, they're living and they're happy and they're accomplishing kind of their goals and dreams. And that doesn't come with you know having a young couple be separated all the time. Right? This isn't. Let's help you set up a good life, not just uh, manage you know the next year or so. So um, so we figured you know we'll, we need to figure out how do you get back and forth to Tulsa and uh, spend you know as much time there as you can, and we'll uh, make that work. So uh, part of my role is I work in Chicago a week a month. So uh, when I'm in Chicago, like. Obviously, you don't need to be in New Orleans, and if you want to leave a bit before that or come back a little after, like that's fine. Like let's just communicate about those things. Uh, we live and work in Chicago most of the summer. My wife is from Chicago, and we have uh, places to stay there. So um, you know, you go be back, you know, go stay in Tulsa. Like you don't need to be at this desk mm -hmm. to do this job. And um, let's just keep communicating about it and how it's working for you because it's not a um, you know, it's important that you learn and do the things you need to do, but it's more important that you are, you know, with your family and that we can help build something that's going to, you know, really be a good fit from that standpoint. 
So, um, so yeah, I just thought it was, you know, beyond anything else, like, it, so maybe it's not the ideal situation, but it, the bottom line is it's the right thing to do. So once we know it's the right thing to do, the question is not like, well, how do we avoid doing it? It's how do we, how do we build this together? So I think the last bit that would be really helpful to talk about is, is what is some advice you have for employers who are looking to hire and candidates who are looking at applications and possible opportunities for fit, for culture, for everything, and the right firm doing what they want to be doing? Um, and so maybe we'll start with the employer and then we'll go to the potential employees. So if I'm an employer, right, and I'm, I'm building out, uh, I, I want to hire someone. What do I need to be thinking about that maybe I'm not thinking about right now? Well, I think there's a lot that you're probably already thinking about as an employer around what kinds of things do you want them to do and skills they need to have and all the prerequisites and you know, computers and insurance and all of that stuff. So what I think people are often missing is what, um, you know, what's going to make me an exceptional manager. And a lot of that is, I think, ultimately skills that make you a great practitioner. But we need to start, I think, from a perspective that is going to put everybody in a place where you can be really successful. Um, and let that infuse through the hiring process, through the bringing somebody on and getting them into situations where they can be pushed, but also where they can be successful. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you're bringing on somebody for their background and expertise and things, and you want to communicate ways to them that they can offer and bring those forward. And it may be an evolution, there may be bumps along the way, but it's going to be something that if you can start from inside of yourself in a really positive place, I think it will make the entire process work well. And when you find that right person, <clears throat> it's going to, uh, it just provides so much background uh, and it fills the emotional bank account to begin where we're investing in each other. What types of questions would you say an employer should be asking that they may not be thinking to ask right now? Of themselves? Or of the candidates? Oh, well, I think you I ask, think you ask fairly different questions. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah, uh, and I do. I mean, I so like as far as interview questions, I do think like you need to ask people what, you know, so what made us a bad day at your current job? Because um, if if my job is full of the same stuff, this is, you have a lot of bad days, and this isn't going to be great for everybody. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I think you want to be asking too about. Uh, oh shoot, I wish I had my questions in front of me. I'll pull it up. Um, the, yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, as, you know, I think you want to find out what motivates somebody, right? And if, if it's money, that's fine. And there's places for that person in our industry, but it may not be as a junior financial planner. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, ultimately, what uh, achievements are they proud of? Have they been able to, can they demonstrate to you that they were able to, set a goal, aspire to something, work towards it, have some struggles, and then ultimately accomplish that. And it's really, I think it's a good way to see about what's in their values system. You know, is it something that they did and is it on their own? Or do they talk about how they built a team and how they worked together to accomplish something as well? Um, so uh, I think that's, you know, really about some of those things uh, and maybe an addition a little bit about working in teams because I think ultimately so much of what we do is team related. Um, and that is not everybody's favorite thing, especially in college, to talk about their team working experiences. But we should learn about that now while we have the opportunity. I think, too, as a firm, we should be asking ourselves, like, you know, what are we, 
what are we doing to be great managers? Like if you know, we know what we've learned and evolved to do to be great planners and practitioners, but is it just that you know you want to bring in somebody and you think you have something to offer, or are you learning and studying and preparing to be a manager and to evolve and grow as a manager? Because it should be, I think we should treat that with as much care and concern as we do the work we do with our clients. So Autumn, if, if you're talking to potential candidates of financial planning, uh, what do they need to be looking for at firms? What are some questions they should be asking? Yeah, I mean, I know that there are a lot of resources that have been put out by the podcast as well as CFP board and whatnot. So there are questions of what, what are the expectations? What is the current role you're hiring for and what are you looking for that to develop into the next year, three years, five years? What, um, what, what skill sets are you looking for? Is there flexibility in that or is this pretty set in what you, you know, the way you want to grow? What, I mean, things that we learn a lot through school these days with our CFP education on what is the pay and then what are the benefits and then aggregating that together, knowing that that's a comprehensive consideration to be had. To kind of echo Jude though, I think I'd, I'd have some commentary on the manager side of things too, having talked to many next geners and having the privilege of being next gen president that many people have asked me on what opportunities do you have or how did that conversation go with Jude or with other partners at the planning center, for example. And I think the conversation on power and privilege is not had enough in our world, at least, um, of financial planning on Jude understands that there is a presumptive uh, deferment uh, of clients to him, especially if they are his clients and they chose him and then I come into the picture. And so he takes the responsibility to lift me up and give me some of that clout in the client meeting um, or for the accolades that I have, he makes sure to make to help them understand that I, I too have the education that he has. I just don't yet have the same experience and I'm still learning in some ways, as is he in different ways. Um, not quite as many at this point, but <laughs> in his own way. Um, and I, I, I really think it's unbeknownst to people, the amount of implicit things and assumptions that are made in a room. I know that when situations are confusing in our office, when we've had four people there in New Orleans, um, and we're all confused. The tone that Jude sets is the tone of the office, however that is, and we respond to that. Humans, we, we pick up on, on the feeling of the room. We talk about the elephant in the room. We all feel that. Um, few people are strangers to that, that feeling very quickly, and I, I think it's really powerful the, the immense impact a manager can have on how things go, and I, I think people will rise to the expectations others have of them and rise to how others think about them. Do you think about them as a person that I have high expectations and you better follow through on them or else it's your fault or it's I have high expectations on myself to allow you to, to elevate to what I see you as in the next six months, year or three years and I'm gonna make sure that I am your support in any way that you need however that looks. And I think a really great privilege I've had working with Jude is he, he had this great balance of he didn't put a ceiling on me with my growth um, or arbitrary deadlines or he allowed me to grow at the paces I were. Some things I excelled in really quickly and other things took me more time to catch on to. But he always was there to help me kind of like, I think of training wheels on a bike if I needed support, obviously for the, for the well-being of the client and giving them the accurate facts that are needed and whatnot, but he also is well aware of my growth and always supported me as I needed it. I think 
the most indicative thing that I've heard you both talk about is what happens when Edward Jones calls and says, we want to hire Autumn. And so how was that experience for you, Autumn? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, we all know there's lots of inboxes that we get and whatnot. And as I've grown in my professional career here and now with uh, this next gen position that I'm people are knowing who I am and they're asking, what, what do you want for your career? And I remember when I first brought up um, Edward Jones was ha happened to be um, the company in New Orleans that reached out to me, but also talking with other people from other other companies as well. And I talked to Joe about it and he immediately goes, you should talk to them. And I remember, I didn't know what to respond with on that, but he goes, you should. You, it's, it'd be, it's important for you to understand what's different, what's similar, and find your footing. And there was also this sense of freedom of he wants me to be in the right fit. And if that is it, then we're just going to be a little, we're going to have some tension in our relationship if I'm not looking for where I'm at. And I think that he, he gave me, he's, he's given me a lot of powerful language to understand things such as if this is not a right fit, it's better that we both or all understand this sooner and that we help each other find what is the right fit. And I think that freedom has ironically proved to be, allow me to be more loyal because I can tell him what I'm thinking or what's working well or what's not. And within his power, he'll be, he'll adapt as, as makes sense. And if there are things that aren't well fitting, then we'll have a conversation about that. And is that, is that something that would be worth staying based on all the other benefits? Or is that something where I'd want to find elsewhere? And it, so it's been iterative and here I am three years later with the same firm. So there's that, but I just, I don't feel like Jude has coerced me into continuing to work with him. <laughs> sure. And I think that there's a parallel obviously there with our, you know, with our partners outside of work that, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you can be the person who, you know, freaks out every time your significant other has a conversation with somebody else, mm -hmm. or you can be the person who can be a, a little bit comfortable with that and say that, I oh, know you're, uh, you're a great person and people are going to you have a lot to offer. And so people are going to be interested in talking to you, but I, uh, I don't need to be worried about that. And if things, Honestly, if things did change for you, we should probably talk about it. So, um, so I've always been okay with that. And I, I really think for, uh, you know, for people who work with us, I think we're a great place to work, but we may not be for everybody and it may not be forever. So um, I think you should be free to have those conversations and just explore what's going on in the world. And uh, uh, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think we gain anything by trying to be afraid of, of that. Sure, but that's a big culture setting piece, right? Sure. And that could have gone very differently had you said absolutely not. Uh, yeah, certainly. And I think to some degree too, it does help that, I mean, like, yeah, go, go have that conversation, like, and you'll see what, you know, see what the onboarding process is and all those things and see if that's really what you want to do. Right. Because um, I'm pretty confident that, in what we offer, but it's, again, like, if we're going to get to that conclusion, let's do it. I think the last bit to ask is, is there anything you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to, or you were hoping that we would talk about that we didn't? I think for people who are looking to bring somebody on, you can do all the work you want to do in preparing to host them, but it's ultimately the work you need to do, I believe, is the work for yourself and preparing how, how do I want to show up in the world for this person? And how is bringing that person in gonna serve our clients? And we serve them as a servant of our clients, is ultimately, that's ultimately that's what this is all about. So um, if we keep that in mind every day, we'll make good choices and we'll, we'll be in the right place for our, our team. And uh, that's, you know, ultimately all the other success pieces have to come after. We need to be able to have that personal success first. 
I believe it was already said, but it's kind of the, the final note. And I think how we show up for each other is just what resonates with me. Um, and it's what we remember, how people might not hear, remember what you said to them, but they'll remember how you made them feel, Mark or Mead. And that's kind of the sentiment I'm getting at that in my experience with Jude, and, and I've, I've experienced a lot of consistent kindness despite the situation, whether it was on me or not, we, we were working together and we're all trying to get the same outcome. And I, I also remember one distinct memory of Jude that there was a time when he had asked about something and I had not done what I needed to do on it, and so I was not feeling good about it. And he was visibly frustrated, which is not usual. He's, he's a pretty flexible guy and, and, and really great going, but he, he, did, he was visibly frustrated at the time and he walked um, into another room and I, I felt a lot of shame on not, not doing what I needed to do. And he came back out shortly after and then apologized for that and let me know that, that he felt really frustrated with himself on not setting me up for success, which interestingly enough, I still felt ownership on, well, had I done what I should have. So there was, there was ownership on both sides of that, but I think it was really indicative of our relationship that he is the manager and knowing how much it matters to me, how he feels um, about things. He came back and said like, hey, that, that was a miss and I, I wanna let you know that, that that's not on you and, and we're good, but let's, let's talk through how we can now get this thing done well. And so it's not that, it's, that we're perfect, but I think there's a kindness factor of recognizing when there's a miss, having the conversation to use that again, and then moving on together. And if we can do that, we can move mountains. I mean, the other stuff, we can read books and learn about it and technical stuff. How is your work connecting you to your purpose, your community, and your values? I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade. And we believe that independent registered investment advisors have the power to impact the world in profound ways. If you've never considered being an RAA, it's time to take a look. There's no better way to put your skills and knowledge to work for the greater good of your clients, your community, and your own future. Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.